Now in our Through the Bible, Book by Book, we've come to the prophecy of Obadiah. Can you find that? Obadiah. Best way is to find the book of Daniel. That's easy. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then go four blocks to the right, and you'll come out at Obadiah. Obadiah. The shortest book in the New Testament. This ought to be a good time to ask how many have read it. How many have read this uh, today, the book of Obadiah? Oh, that's very good. Now, do as well when we get to Matthew, will you? That's very good. All right. The shortest book in the Old Testament. And as if you've read this book through, uh, you notice that it uh, it is really the pronouncement of doom against an ancient and a long-forgotten nation, the ancient land of Edom. But I hope you noticed more to it than that. In the scriptures, there's that beautiful, the scriptures have that beautiful faculty of uh, appearing to be quite one thing on the surface, but as you get below the surface, you discover rich and mighty treasures. And that's certainly true of this uh, interesting and amazing book of Obadiah. Obadiah, the man himself who wrote this book, we know very little about. He was one of the minor prophets, and there is a reference to an Obadiah, a prophet Obadiah, in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And there is some thought that perhaps it's this prophet, but... Uh, the word or the name Obadiah was a very common name in among the Hebrews, and uh, it's very likely that it uh, was not this particular prophet, but another of the same name. For in this prophecy of Obadiah, there's a mention made of the day when Jerusalem was destroyed, was captured by the alien armies, and that would occur much, much later after the time of Elijah and Elisha. So most Bible commentators take this man to have been a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah, the last of the prophets before Israel went into captivity. And uh, uh, his name means the servant of Jehovah, so that uh, he fulfills the position of a servant. There's not much said about him. He comes and does his work and fades back into the background delivers his message, and he's gone. And that's about all we know of the man behind the book. But the book itself is the story of two nations, the nation Israel and the nation of Edom, the country to the south of, of Israel uh, that is now usually referred to in our uh, newspapers as the Negev, N-E-G-E-V, or sometimes N-E-G-E-B. That's the ancient land of Edom. It was through this land that Israel marched as they came into the land of Israel out of, out of the uh, captivity and slavery of Egypt. And uh, as they came into the land, they had difficulties with the Edomites. And this land was, a, was an enemy of the nation Israel since its very beginning. But behind the story of these two nations, as you have it in this little prophecy, you discover this is also the story, basically, of two men. For every nation 
in the in the Bible is a uh, lengthened shadow of its originator, its founder. And the two men behind the nations Israel and Edom were twin brothers. You know who they are? Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the father of Israel. It was Jacob who had the twelve sons who became the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. And Esau, his twin brother, became the father of the Edomites. So that in the story of these two nations, you also have the extended uh, tracing of the story of these two men, Jacob and Esau. God, in a sense, has put Jacob and Esau into an enlarger and blown them up to national size. And as you see the prophet uh, discussing these, you can see that behind the story of these two nations is still the story of these two men. For Jacob, uh, Israel is still Jacob, and Esau or Edom is still Esau. And the two, remember, were in perpetual antagonism, Jacob and Esau. We read in the book of Genesis that even before they were born, they struggled together in their mother's womb. And that antagonism marked the lives of these two men and the consequent lives of their descendants, the two nations of Israel and Edom. And as you recall the, the account, Jacob was mother's darling, and Esau was daddy's little man. And they, uh, there was one uh, unending conflict between the two of them. And it did not end with the men. The nations carried on this same conflict. And all the way from Genesis through Malachi, you have the threat of struggle between these two nations. Unbroken antagonism. And in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Bible, remember Genesis records the beginning of these nations. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, why... All this in the Bible, in the pages of the Bible. Why does this come to a focus like this in this little prophecy of Obadiah? What is so important about these two men? What is so important about these two nations that there's such a focus of attention upon this? Well, that's what the book of Obadiah makes very clear to us. In the New Testament, we discover that... uh, uh, there is a perpetual antagonism in, within the nature of, of the Christian, of the believer. Remember in Galatians, we're told that the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other. Now, God is a great illustrator. He is always using pictures for us that we might understand truth more easily, more graphically. We're children like that. We like to have a picture. Uh, That's why Life magazine is one of the most popular of magazines, because it's a picture magazine. And we'd rather see something than hear it. And God has many pictures. And he has taken these two men and the, uh, the subsequent nations that came from them and used them continually through the Bible as without any variation at all, as a as an invariable picture of the conflict between the flesh and the spirit, Jacob and Esau. 
Israel in Edom. And invariably, this is true wherever you find reference to these men or nations in the Bible. Now this, by the way, is a wonderful key to Bible study. I hope you have learned to recognize what we might call interpretational constants that run throughout the scriptures. There are certain names or figures or uh, metaphors or similes that once used in the Bible to refer as a symbol of something maintain that characteristic and that reference all the way through, wherever it's used. You know how this is true about certain items, certain uh, material things like oil. Oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit, wherever it's used symbolically in the scriptures. Wine is a picture of the joy, uh, of joy, wherever it's used symbolically in the scriptures. Uh, Leaven is a picture of evil, wherever you find it in the scriptures. And uh, uh, here you have Jacob and Esau, these two men, and the nations Israel and Edom, that always appear as a picture for us of a struggle that's going on in our own lives as believers between the flesh and the spirit, the unending antagonism. Two great principles that are irreconcilably opposed to one another throughout this. Esau lusts against Jacob and Jacob against Esau so that you cannot do the things that you would. These things are contrary the one to the other. Now, Obadiah turns the spotlight on Esau and Jacob. First on Esau, who's the man of the flesh, and Edom, the proud nation that came from the flesh. And he answers the question for us, why does God hate Esau? Now, the trouble with Esau in this little book is stated in verse 3. The pride of your heart, the prophet says, has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, whose dwelling is high, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? That's the trouble with Esau. Pride. Pride is the root of all human evil. And pride is the basic, unerring characteristic of what the Bible calls the flesh, that that lusts against, that wars against the spirit. A principle that stands athwart God's purposes in human lives and continually defies what God is trying to accomplish. Now, each of us have this struggle within us if we're Christians. And its basic characteristic is revealed here. It's pride. That's the number one uh, identifying mark of the flesh. You remember in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 6, verse... 16, I think it is. The proverb says, These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And what's number one on the list? (laughs) A proud look. A proud look. And everything else that follows is another variation of pride. Those that are swift to running to mischief. uh, He that spreads lies and slanders and discord among brethren. Murderers and tailbearers and all these other things. All are manifestations of that single basic evil, pride. And this is the satanic nature which was implanted in the human race so that all who are born of Adam are born with this congenital twist toward pride. 
the independent ego that evaluates everything only in terms of its importance or its unimportance to me, the universe centering around me, the rival God. Now, that's pride. That's Esau. That's Edom. It appears and can appear in our life in 10,000 ways, but you'll find some common expressions of it here in this book of Obadiah. It may be, for instance, self-sufficiency, as you find in verse 3. Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, thence will I bring you down, says the Lord. Here's the man who says, nothing can touch me. Who's going to upset me? I've got my plans all laid. I, uh, I'm able to carry through what I set about doing. I propose to do something and I carry it out. And this attitude of self-sufficient ability is a mark of pride. And God says, though you set your, though you uh, soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is up among the stars, yet I'm able to bring you down. Now, the reference in this book to you who live in the clefts of the rock is a very little literal reference to the nation of Edom. Some of you perhaps have had the privilege of visiting the Holy Land, and perhaps some of you have even gone down into the Negev area and visited the, the city of Petra, the rose-red city of the dead, an amazing city that is approached through a Tremendous fissure in a rock that runs for a mile or more right through a rock, a narrow defile only a few yards wide that uh, brings you at last into an open place where the, some tremendously huge rock temples have been carved out of the living rock. Giant temples with doorways some 25 and 30 feet high in them. Huge temples. That was the capital of Edom. That was the ancient city that uh, defied all people to take it and who felt because of these natural defenses that they were impregnable and who lifted up their hearts in pride. And as the prophet says here, the Lord speaking through the prophet uh, uh, says that uh, the pride of their heart has deceived them. They think they are absolutely impregnable. Nothing can overthrow them. But God says it shall be done. And just uh, a few uh, years after our Lord's day, the Romans came in and took Edom and destroyed the cities of Edom and uh, took this impregnable fortress. And ever since that time, it has been in ruins. Now, this kind of self-sufficiency, you'll notice, is clearly evident in the man who says, I don't need God. I can run my own life without God, my own wisdom, my own strength, my own uh, abilities, my own talents, that's enough. That's all I need to make a success in life. But it's also seen in the Christian who says, well, I need God, yes, in times of danger and fear and pressure. But uh, I'm quite able, thank you, to make my own decisions about the girl I'm going to marry or the career I'm going to follow or the friends that I have, or the car that I buy, or anything else like that. Now, you see, that's still the same spirit of self-sufficiency, isn't it? 
The thing that characterized the Lord Jesus Christ, that marked him as continually opposed to this, saint, this spirit of self-sufficiency, was his utter dependence on the Father. And we Christians have to learn that if there's any area of our life where we think we've got what it takes to do what we want to do without God, it's in that area we're manifesting the flesh, the pride of Edom. When you step into your office on Monday morning, and you've been a fine Christian on Sunday all through the weekend, but on Monday morning you step into your office and you say, now I'm in charge. I know what to do here. I don't need the Bible, I don't need God, I don't need my religion to help me here. I know exactly how to run this business. You're manifesting this same spirit of Edom, this spirit of self-sufficiency. And this is why many Christians live in areas of their life as though God were dead in that area. Believing in God, but living as though he were dead, without any sense of dependence upon his wisdom and his strength. Now, another form of pride is found in verse 10 of this letter. For the violence that you've done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Violence is a form of pride. A man who strikes his wife, the neighbor who must report a child that's been beaten, even babies sometimes, bones broken, damaged internally. What's behind this violence of the human heart? Well, it's an unbroken ego. It's a spoiled and cowardly spirit. It's centered only on self, and it strikes out against anything that dares to challenge the supreme reign of the ego in life. I've been in Christian homes where a woman has sat with her eyes blackened and bruises on her legs and on her arms, where her Christian husband, who was a Sunday school teacher, had beaten up on her. Well, where, where does this violence come from? Well, you see, it's Edom. It's the pride of the flesh. There's another form of it in verse 11. Uh, Edom is charged, On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You just stood and watched. Indifference is a form of pride. I think by far this is one of the most major causes of marital difficulties in the constant stream of people who have come to see me through the years about problems in their marriage. Almost invariably, somewhere along the line, I hear the complaint, well, he's simply indifferent to me. He doesn't care anything about me. He ignores me. Or she pays no attention to me. She isn't interested in what I'm doing. She isn't interested in the things that, uh, that I'm interested in. Isn't it strange that in Christian homes, these things can be there? And how quickly it comes in after courtship. During the courtship, you know, it's, what would you like, dear? Where would you like to go? How do you feel, anyway? What are you thinking about? Tell me what you'd like. But when marriage comes, it's, where is dinner? Where's the paper? What's on TV? And the concern is entirely different. Now, why? 
Well, Esau's at work. That's all. The force in human life which God hates. That's Esau. There's another form of it in verse 12 and 13. But you should not have gloated over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. You should not have rejoiced over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. You should not have boasted in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of his calamity. You should not have gloated over his disaster in the day of his calamity. You should not have looted his goods in the day of his calamity. God charges Edom with the sin of gloating as a manifestation of this basic problem of pride. You notice how you hear this so frequently in children who haven't yet learned to cover up with this subtle varnish of uh, politeness what they feel. You ever hear a child say, Yeah, 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 good for you. <laughs> you had it coming. Do you ever say that in your own heart about somebody? <laughs> you had it coming. Gloating over them. Uh, uh, adults learn to disguise this sometimes, but it comes out once in a while. You hear that the boss is sick, and you say, well, nothing trivial, I hope. <laughs> uh, what do you say when when uh, someone uh, fails, and you hear about it? Do you ever say, well, I told you so. I knew that would happen. <laughs> I expected it all along. There's that sense of gloating. Uh, I remember reading of the hypochondriac who had written on his tombstone the words, I told you I was sick. <laughs> now, why? what is this? What causes this? Why do we like to rub salt on another's wound? What's behind this perverse delight we take in another person's failure or his fall? Well, it's Esau in us. The flesh Lust is against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. In his pride and unconcern, we don't care what happens to someone else, as long as everything's all right with us, and we gloat over it. Verse 14 is another manifestation. Exploitation. You should not have stood at the parting of the waves to cut off his fugitives, you should not have delivered up his survivors in the day of distress. That is, when calamity fell, Edom took advantage of it. They moved in on a fallen people, on a captured people, and took advantage of the fact that these were fugitives, and they used their trouble and their misery to their own advantage. They delivered up the survivors in the day of Israel's distress. They took unfair advantage. God hates that. Utilizing another's weakness or his bad luck to our advantage. Have you ever heard anyone say, well, you know, I, I, I had a contractor bid on some work I'd like him to do. And you know, the fellow made a mistake and he way underbid this, but I'm going to hold him to it. After all, I've got the contract. He signed it. I'm going to hold him to that. That's taking advantage of another's mistake. And it's so easy. We find this spirit coming up so easily, isn't it, when something like that. Oh, we say, that's your hard luck. Finders keepers, losers weepers. And uh, we, we try to move in and take advantage of another's distress. 
Or you say, well, I could never do a thing like that. Well, how many of you are on the lookout for, for some old coin or some antique chair or some widow's selling her husband's golf clubs and she doesn't know the value of them? Hmm, what a bargain, huh? Let's move in on that and take advantage of it. Well, this is only a partial listing of the ways of Esau, the man God hates. But the worst thing is back in verse 3 again, the tragedy of Esau. God says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, I didn't plan to have this message follow on the message that we brought this morning. But it's an amazing coincidence, isn't it, that this is talking about the very same thing. Deceitful lusts we talked about this morning. And here again, back in the Old Testament, in the little obscure book of Obadiah, you find the same thing. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You're this way, but you don't know it. Blind to your own problems. We go on thinking everything's fine, but suddenly everything falls apart, just as it did here to Edom. Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have deceived you. They have driven you to the border. Your confederates have prevailed against you. Your trusted friends have set a trap under you. There's no understanding of it. That's the terrible thing about pride. It traps us. It tricks us. It trips us up. We don't recognize it until we too, too late. We go stumbling along in our pride and arrogance and vanity, and we think we're doing fine. Everyone else can see the trouble we're having. But we go blissfully on, sawing away on the limb, totally unaware that the limb we're sawing on is the one we're sitting on until it falls down. And then we're, we're suddenly exposed. Remember that, that, that uh, uh, Aesop's fable of the emperor's suit? Remember that story of the emperor who advertised throughout his kingdom for a tailor to make him a specially good suit? And a man came and, and told him that he would go and make him the finest suit that's ever been made. And he said, he brought one day a piece of cloth and showed it to the emperor. And uh, the trouble was there was nothing there. He held up his hands as though he had a piece of cloth. And he said to the emperor, you know, this cloth has a re really remarkable quality. Only the pure in heart can see it. If, uh, if you have any evil in your heart, uh, you can't see this cloth. But if your heart is pure, then you can see this cloth. Now, surely, sir, you can see it. And the emperor couldn't see anything, but he nodded his head. Oh, what beautiful cloth. Remarkable cloth. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And so that you remember how the story went on, the man made him a suit out of this cloth. And he came and put it on him. The poor emperor, naked, stood there, fancying he had these clothes on. And he called in his courtiers to, to admire it. And he told them, of course the special quality about it. And they too said, oh my, what a beautiful suit. No one would admit it, that they couldn't see a thing. Until the emperor, in his pride and his vanity, decided to march right out through the public streets of the city so everyone could see it. And there the poor, ignorant fellow goes, strutting along in his nakedness. And the whole city out there admiring and awing, all but for a little boy who stood and said, 
but the emperor doesn't have anything on. And that, you remember how that story uh, reveals this, this deceitful quality of pride. How it, uh, we deceive ourselves. Now, what can you do about this? This is where we live, isn't it? We all have this, this flesh within. Well, that's not the end of the story. Read verses 15 and 16 here. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, all the nations round about shall drink. They shall drink and stagger and shall be as though they had not been. In other words, God has determined judgment upon Edom. And there's no escaping of it. Does that sound like destruction there? Well, it is for Esau. There's no hope for Esau. There's no way out for Esau. The judgment of God is absolutely unescapable for Esau. God is forever set against him. One of the grandsons of Esau was a man named Amalek. And Amalek also withstood Israel on their way into the land of Canaan. And in the 17th chapter of Numbers, it's recorded that God said to Moses, I will make war against Amalek forever. I will never make peace with Amalek. Now, that's what God's saying, you see, about the flesh. I'll never make peace. Man, uh, God is forever set against him. But uh, the day of triumph is for Jacob. Look at verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those that escape. Mount Zion is Jerusalem, Jacob. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor to the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. And verse 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is what you might call the ruthlessness of God. He has his heart set to destroy Esau. And after all, that's the whole story of the coming of the Holy Spirit into the human heart. He's come to destroy Esau. And all these characteristics again of him. And uh, he's going to destroy him in those who are his and bring Jacob into the full possession of all his possessions. And the weapon he uses is the judgment of the cross. Isn't it interesting that when you get over to the New Testament, you find these same two principles focused again in two persons who meet in the pages of the Gospels face to face. In the scene of the last week of our Lord's sufferings, he stands before Herod. And Herod, we're told, is an Edomian, which is another spelling for the word Edom, an Edomite. And there stands Jesus before Herod, the representative of Jacob and the representative of Esau, face to face. Herod, the Edomian, the Edomite, proud and arrogant 
and rebellious, watches the cruel mockery of the soldiers as they strip the Lord down and dress him in his royal robes. And remember, the gospel writer says that Herod plied him with many questions. But for the son of Esau, there's no answer from the son of Jacob. He's nothing to discuss with him. There's no compromise possible. God has nothing to say to the flesh, nothing at all, except judgment. And what's the final issue of that account? Well, the prisoner went out to a cross and a grave, and from it he emerged a king. But the king, Herod, went on to disgrace and to exile, and finally to a grave in a foreign country, and beyond it, he's a prisoner bound by the chains of his own making eternally. Now, which are you? A king or a prisoner? Is Esau or Jacob ruling? Do you know anything about this ruthless cross that denies you any right to self-sufficiency, to self-expression, to self-advantage, to self-exploitation, to all these things? To uh, indifference denies you the right to indifference or violence or gloating or self-righteousness. Have you learned yet to reign with Christ, not in heaven, but right now, to possess your possessions, as Jacob is intended to do, so that the kingdom shall be the Lord's, the kingdom of your life? Or are you still a prisoner, like Herod? Fancying yourself to be free on a throne in authority, but still bound by unbreakable chains because you refuse to pass through the death that frees and sets us free. Still so much of Esau and so little of Jacob. Our Father, search our hearts in this moment as we see how vividly this Old Testament illustration sets before us the truth of the New Testament. And as we are face to face with the mirror of thy word, we've seen ourselves. May we not be, as James describes those who look in their mirror and see themselves and go their way and straightway forget what manner of men they were. God grant to us the grace to yield to the cross and its judgment upon all the self-life that we might know the glory of this mighty truth that's reflected here and possess our possessions so that the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In his name we pray. Amen.